that phrase from that song, where else would we go? That was Jesus who had fed the multitudes. After he had fed them, they started wandering away. He said they came and gathered because they wanted food. And then he looked at his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And I believe it was Peter, usually is, he was kind of the spokesman, said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so I hope that's what you come today to hear is the words of God's grace and eternal life. We are looking at people from Scripture who were desperate for God. If God hadn't worked, nothing would have changed in their situation. And I'm hoping that by the end of this, we're going to see lots of different different scenarios, as well as recognize when I'm desperate for God, the place to turn isn't my logic, it isn't my capacity or my skill is to turn to the Lord as well, just like some of these people did. Um, We're in John chapter 3. Last week we started with Nicodemus. We had youth that came and led worship and did a little bit of a program, and so we didn't get all the way. I want to do a little bit of a a review, but I wanted to build some things uh, about Nicodemus and who he was, what he did, and didn't really have the time to do that, but now it creates a good opportunity. Uh, It really was pretty good. We had a lot of guests last week with our with our youth coming back, and so uh, the first time that Nicodemus appears before Jesus, all of which are in the Gospel of John, um, Jesus instructed him, you must be born again, and so it was good for everyone that was present to hear of the opportunity for salvation, the necessity of it as well, and that only in Jesus can we be forgiven. We mentioned that Nicodemus was extremely different than Rahab the harlot, who we had looked at two weeks ago. Um, But they both found themselves in situations that made them desperate for God. Nicodemus, an intensely moral man, extremely religious, devoted to what he believed, exceptionally devoted, and yet he showed a tender heart towards the spiritual things of the Lord. Find him three times in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, chapter 7, and chapter 19. Uh, The main part today is going to be chapter 7. Rahab the harlot, completely different. Morality um, wasn't there. Uh, She lived in fear, but God graced her. Um, She saved two spies, and then somewhere along the path of her journey in life, she trusted the Lord. And we find, though we're not clear about the when of that, uh, but we find her in in the Gospel of Matthew in Jesus' genealogy. And I think it was, I think we said that she was David's great-great-grandmother. So that just kind of gives you a little bit of perspective there. Nicodemus, we said John chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 1. I'll probably read it since we haven't read it. John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, very short. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And we mentioned last week that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews Uh, And they were the group that intensely opposed Christ during his earthly ministry. Uh, So much so that in time, and we're going to read it today, Jesus would pronounce eight woes on the Pharisees. Um, They were his adversary. Ultimately, they would be the ones who would deliver him to the Roman government because they didn't have the ability to give anybody the death sentence because Rome was over them. And so they manipulated and coerced people. Um, Jesus would denounce the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. I'm going to read it if you want to follow along. Matthew 23, a scribe being one learned in the Jewish law, a religious teacher, someone of significant religious influence. 
Um, the Pharisees had a ruling body. It was called the Sanhedrin. We'll get to that in a minute. Sanhedrin was made up of the high priest and 70 uh, leading men, one of which was Nicodemus. And then we're going to be introduced to a new character this morning also, and we sang about him even, and that was Joseph of Arimathea. He was the one who provided a, a grave for Jesus also. He also was part of the, uh, the uh, Sanhedrin, was, a, was a, uh, a Pharisee as well. But they were so against Jesus and what he was intending to do that Jesus pronounced eight woes upon them. And I want to read those, Matthew chapter 23, and I'm going to start in verse 13. This is what Jesus had to say to this group. And I want you to envision this because Nicodemus is one of these people. And he's come to Jesus by night. He's got a tender heart, it seems, towards the things of the Lord. And yet he hears these things from Jesus' mouth. So we can only imagine what's going on in his heart and in his mind. Verse 13 says this, woe, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 15, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's won you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So they believed in missions too. There are a lot of groups out there doing missions, but these guys weren't doing it in a way that was pleasing to God. Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple he's obligated to perform it fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the it's nothing. Whoever swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's obligated to perform it. So they set this higher standard on material things. See that around, don't we? Fools and blind, verse 19, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, don't neglect this, these you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be cleansed also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness." Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocr uh, hypocrisy and lawlessness. And we don't have scribes and Pharisees in our world today, but we can sure do that and dress up the outside of the body and make it look good with the inside being completely rotten and stinky and no good. And so we want to learn the lesson, even though we're not going to fulfill their particular task. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
You have built the tombs of the prophets and adorned the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have, partake, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have killed them like they killed them. We wouldn't have sawn Isaiah in half and made some of the others wander in the deserts. Verse 31, therefore your witnesses against yourself you're the, that you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And they did. That on, that, on you may, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bershia, uh, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will co- come upon this generation. Now, I want you to just think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one of these people that Jesus is declaring these woes against. And so he's come to Jesus by night, and the message that Jesus gave him was, Nicodemus, don't be surprised, don't be amazed. You must be born spiritually. You must be born again. And so he shows a tender heart, and yet he still is walking in companionship with these individuals, hearing these kinds of words uh, uh, declared against them from the Lord. There must have been some, some strange things going on in his mind and in his heart. He was in a desperate situation is the point that I'm wanting to make. With every woe that Jesus pronounced, you can almost feel Nicodemus's countenance fall. He wasn't, he wasn't the only one. Joseph of Arimathea walked with him also, was also one of the members of the ruling Sanhedrin whom, uh, who would at some point follow Jesus. What a difficult, desperate situation. We're not going to mirror their situation But I've got a feeling that in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, the folks who have grown up in the church, who have walked through all of the different steps of confession of Jesus, but don't genuinely have a true, genuine spirit of wanting to be a follower of Jesus, might sense themselves in some sort of a situation like this. I mean, if I really gave my life to Christ what would all of the people think of me? I've been in church for 30 years, for 40 years, for 50 years. Who cares what people think of you? What's critical is what does God think? And the only way into the kingdom of heaven is you must be born again. And if somebody is genuinely a follower of Jesus, we would applaud and clap our hands and maybe stand in amazement, but look at the grace of God reaching someone who had been religious, not like the Pharisees, but in a similar kind of situation. So you be careful to be tender to the word of the Lord rather than your religious holdings. You be careful to be tender to the Lord. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70, along with the high priest, 71 people. um, And it began, and I read this this week even, somebody asked me a question about it. It began back with Moses after the children of Israel had left Egypt They'd only been eating manna, and they started complaining. And, and so when they started complaining, you read the story in Numbers chapter 11, then Moses begins to start complaining to the Lord as well. 
And basically what he says is, am I supposed to take all of this on all by myself? And God said to him, gather 70 men, 70 that are, re- that are rulers, that are leaders, bring them to me. And then, and then they had an interaction with the Lord. And so that's where that Sanhedrin began. And it continued all the way through until when Rome undid it because of the political influence that it had. Uh, Sanhedrin uh, basically is a council or a court. Any town with 120 men would have a local council of Sanhedrin. Those with less were assigned a specific number, a lesser number. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was considered the great Sanhedrin. It would be, if you want to try and, um, igual, yeah. if you want to try and envision it as something similar to what we have, it would be something like a Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court would be the, would be the Sanhedrin that was in Jerusalem. Where do we find the word Sanhedrin in Scripture? When we read our English texts, we don't find it there, but it is there. And I'm in Matthew chapter 26, and I want to read a place where it, where it mentions this. Matthew chapter 26, uh, towards the end of Jesus, uh, his life. Those who had laid hold of Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony, sought false testimony, that's the integrity they had, against Jesus to put him to death. But none, none was found. In verse 59, we have the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony. That word council is the word Sanhedrin. Let me spell it for you. It would be S-U-N-E-D-R-I-O-N. You can almost hear it. We just don't have that word, Sanhedrion, or something of that line. Uh, it's a setting together. It's a council or a court, or in this case in Jerusalem, a supreme court, the high court composed of 71 members. Nicodemus was one of these 71. Joseph of Arimathea was one of these 71. So when Jesus pronounced these woes in Matthew 23, they received those as woe unto you because he was a Pharisee and he was a member of this council. Last week we saw Jesus emphasize the need to be born again, to be born spiritually. Nicodemus would have been cautious Fearful, maybe, because of his contemporaries, probably that's why he visited Jesus by night earlier in his ministry in John chapter 3. The second time we encounter Nicodemus is in John chapter 7. Open your Bible to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, a little bit later on in Jesus' ministry, we encounter Nicodemus here. And I think it's significant to his desperation for God. We find it in John 7. He is functioning with the others in his official capacity as a member of the rulers in the Sanhedrin. We could read some history if we wanted to to find out how they made the decisions they made. Some were probably probably manipulated. Others were probably voted upon as well. In this passage, we see Nicodemus' spiritual desperation highlighted and clarified even though some of the things, uh, through some of the things that his co-rulers say. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but let me just build up to uh, where we're headed. John chapter 7 verse 1. After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So there's some intensity going on now with Jesus' ministry. They don't just not like him. They're not just pointing at him. They're not just talking about him. They're wanting to kill him. Verse 2. Now the Jews 
Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. This was a week-long feast, and those that were in his family and closest to him said, Listen, you're the Messiah, you're doing these incredible things. Go up there and do them up there so that the others that are your followers can see what's going on as well. But Jesus ultimately said, No, it's not my time yet. Verse 10, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast... Then he also went up, not publicly, but privately. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? There was, not, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Verse 13, this is significant. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And that for fear of the Jews wasn't all of the Jewish body, likely in reference to the council or the Sanhedrin or the rulers. And if we speak something, we're afraid of them. So, verse 14 says, about in the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. So, we really see him launching ministry here. Verse, uh, verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So, he made it public that they were seeking to kill him. And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The crowd, the general populace didn't realize that. They said, well, are you demon possessed? You think somebody's trying to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Talking about the pool of Bethesda, we sang about it, I think, this morning. That, refer- that song that we sang doesn't reference this. Talking about the pool of Bethesda, healing a sick man who had laid there for 38 years. He didn't have anybody to put him into the pool. Whenever he would try and get up, somebody else would come in. Um, and Jesus did that on a Sabbath. And because of that, the rulers or the Sanhedrin were against him. Drop down to verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man... Uh, whom they is not this the man whom they seek to kill and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ verse 32 the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers these officers would be temple guards made up of Levites and they did whatever was the beckoning of the Sanhedrin and when all of the people would converge on the town in the temple because of the feast they kept things in order. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out. He didn't stand and speak with a passive voice. He didn't stand and speak with a meek voice. He cried out. He shouted out. So here's Jesus who said, no, it's not my time yet. And now he's made his way up to the feast. And it's the last day, the great day. And he stands up in the middle of the temple and he screams out these words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so they're sitting in this massive assembly, and they're talking about, is this the Christ? Is this not the Christ? Who's seeking to kill you? Some are seeking to kill him. Um, he's, He's this, he's that. And he stands up and he screams out in a loud voice, if anybody thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I want to suggest that the reason we're here today, 2023, is because this Jesus has the ability still to forgive.
live and cause living waters to flow out of our hearts. Amen? And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know exactly what that is. And if you're just kind of a religious person, you just kind of amen because everybody else is going to amen. But the word would be the same as it was to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Believe in him. Follow him. It's the heartbeat of the message to Nicodemus. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people. There's confusion going on. They don't know what's going on. Of course they don't know what's going on. Their religious leaders, the people that are supposed to be their spiritual leaders, are out seeking to kill Christ. They're not taking care of their flock. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. There was an intense confusion and division among the people and those who were supposed to be leading them spiritually were more concerned with their own interests and their own power. And how can we eliminate this Jesus? Because he is threatening the position that we have. And, and we see it today. We see it today in government. Who, not that we shouldn't care about that, but we see it today in the church. That one we should especially care about. We need to be very, very, very careful that we follow God's word, God's son, led by the Spirit of God, not just our traditions. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They sent these temple officers, these Levites that had this responsibility of policing. They sent them to arrest Jesus, and their response was, nobody ever spoke like this guy before. Nobody's ever spoken like this man. He spoke truth. It pricked their hearts. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? And this is what I want us to do. I want us to see three ways that these rulers, these leading Pharisees, this Sanhedrin, treated different groups in this situation. It happens today still, ultimately intensifying Nicodemus's desperation because he is one of them. All right. The first one, they use intimidation against the officers. They sent them out to arrest Jesus, and when they, when they came back without Jesus, they intimidated him. They intimidated them, rather. Have you been deceived also? Why can't you just do your job, in other words? We're not believing in him, neither should you. We're the rulers. We're the leaders. We're the spiritually elite, and we're not following Jesus, so who are you to not follow Jesus? So they sought to intimidate him. Almost a hint of superiority. We're more insightful than you, and we're not going to follow this Jesus. That's used these days also. The second group, they belittle and mocked the crowd, the masses, those whom they were supposed to be leading spiritually. Look at verse 49. But this crowd, they're speaking to the officers. Have you been deceived? But this crowd, like they're pointing to the crowd, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So they didn't just belittle them, they cursed them. They said they're below being blessed. These common, spirit, simple-minded, uneducated, untrained, gullible ones, they're just accursed. So some, they sought to, uh, they sought to intimidate. Others, they belittled and mocked. 
a little bit later, after the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9, listen to the intimidation going on. The blind man's parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Now, it isn't on this level. It would be a lot, a lot more significant. We're talking about the synagogue and God's chosen people. But that would be like me saying to Kirk Mann, Kirk Mann, if you don't follow what we're saying, what we're teaching, we're going to put you out of this church. But this isn't just this church. This is the synagogue of the chosen people of God. And the reason these blind parents didn't want to say anything is because they feared these Jewish leaders. Can you see how much they're not leading the people? And Nicodemus is one of them. He's in that crowd. So he's, he's got this desperate situation going on. I have a heart for and want to hear the things of Jesus, but I've got these power-hungry, manipulating co-workers that are also placing me in a difficult situation. Nicodemus would have been part of that conversation. He would have been in those meetings. He would have heard those things, always with the spiritual wrestling going on inside of his heart and in his mind. If we don't like what they say, if we don't like what the people are doing, we'll just put them out of the synagogue. We're going to use God and worshiping God as a tool of manipulation is what they were doing. This intensifies Nicodemus' desperate spiritual situation. Jesus said to him, you must be born again. The rulers say, if you follow him, we're going to put you out of the synagogue. Nicodemus must have been contemplating these two extremes. The third way that they treated people, we find they sought to pressure Nicodemus, specifically someone from their own group. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that was at night, John 3, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing or learning what he does? At this point, Nicodemus seems open here, maybe even trying to tone down the tenseness of the situation, at least wanting to hear Jesus' claims. They're not interested in that. This isn't a declaration of Nicodemus' faith. We don't have that in the New Testament, so we don't want to be careful there. Um, we want to let God do whatever God did with Nicodemus, but it sure seems like he grows in his friendliness, and we'll see that especially in the third encounter. Um, they reply to Nicodemus in verse 30, uh, 52, one of their co-ruler cohorts, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they sought to pressure Nicodemus, manipulate him, even use their intellect to cause him to be swayed to their persuasion. You know what the problem is? They didn't know their Bible very well because Jonah was from Galilee. You've got to do a little bit of geography. You've got to look at a map and be able to discern that. And you can do that if you want to in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, or Joshua chapter, and Joshua chapter 19, verse 10. Um, are you just like him is what they're saying? No prophet comes from Galilee trying to pressure him, to manipulate him, and others among them who might be like him, one of whom is Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was from Galilee. You have to do a little bit of work to get there. But if you do some geologic, ge geographical study, and you'll see that as well. But the point is, they sought to pressure and manipulate Nicodemus. Started with the guards, then it went to the masses. Let's just belittle them. 
And now let's intellectually manipulate Nicodemus, one of ours. Try and bully him to their side. Does that happen in the church? Does that happen in theological conversations? Have you read your social media lately? It's, it, it gets absurd to bully him to their side, to coerce, to strong arm him. But they were wrong. So they just spoke a little louder. And after all, if we speak a little louder with a little bit more firmness, then surely somebody's going to listen. And that's what they sought to do. Nicodemus finds himself in a very desperate, difficult situation. God is the only one who's going to be able, who is able to sort out this kind of a dilemma. And you know what the answer is? The answer is what Jesus stood up and cried on that last great day in the temple. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's the same word that Jesus had given to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. It's the same message. Come to me and drink, and you'll have waters of living living. You'll have living waters. It's the same word today. It's the same message for the people in this church or all around our world today come to Jesus. If you and I were to die today and find ourselves at heaven's door and someone would say, why should I let you into heaven? If you say on June 18th, I was at Lone Jack Baptist Church worshiping God and it really meant something significantly. I have a feeling that the words would be, depart from me, I never knew you. The only reason that we have entrance into the the, uh, communion with God and into his presence is because of Jesus Christ and only because of Jesus Christ. The one supports the other. The one is not the other. The third time we find the only acceptable response, is a big deal, the only respectable uh, response is I believe in and on Jesus. It's present, it's active, and it's, it's demonstrable as well. The third time we find Jesus, we're going to work through this pretty quick. This is the, this is the closest we get to a demonstration of a changed life. Uh, we're in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And it says this in verse 38. Jesus has been crucified. He has died now. And in verse 38, we find, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea... And I want to take just a second and say a word or two about Joseph of Arimathea. He also was one of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the rulers of the Jews. Uh, In in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, we find this. um, There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, that same word Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So somehow, however they chose to make the decision, let's crucify Jesus, let's manipulate the courts and take him before Roman rule. Somehow Joseph of Arimathea, he stood against that council, and and it was known. Uh, So he had not consented to their decision and action, and and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 15, verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, 
took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That would take some courage. I mean, you got, you got these Sanhedrin, these rulers saying, saying, kill him, crucify him, hang him on a tree. And you got this man who's one of them saying, I'm going to go see if I can take care of this body. That's as close as we get to a declaration. We do have a, we do have a phrase that says he was a disciple of Jesus as well. But that was Joseph of Arimathea. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And so he was a follower, but he didn't let anybody know, or not very many people know, because of fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that John 3 passage, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. They took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen clothes with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. It was contrary to their law to have anybody that was dead that wasn't cared for. That's why the rush on taking care of Jesus. And Josephus, a a Jewish historian, says that happened even for those that were unrighteous, even the thieves on the cross, they would take care of very quickly uh, because they didn't want to violate their their day of preparation. They were were quickly taking care of Jesus' body. It doesn't say that that was Joseph's tomb. I almost get the picture that we're reading this. They recognize that there was a tomb there closed where nobody had ever been laid before. Scripture says that he was a rich man. So it was almost, I'm seeing that it was almost like, what's the cost? I'll buy it. Not a problem. That's where we're going to put Jesus. Not that he had had it for him, his, his own self prior. What Nicodemus and Joseph likely didn't realize that they were doing is they were fulfilling prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, just a couple of verses after what Dave read this morning. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, those that were thieves on the cross, and the rich. Joseph was the rich man who purchased likely the the tomb for Jesus. Nicodemus provided 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, estimated to be a very costly amount. It appears that Nicodemus's desperate spiritual dilemma was responded to by faith. But that's as close as we get. We don't have a baptistic, he prayed a prayer kind of a thing, and neither does God, by the way. Um, but he had a faith that was demonstrated in the Lord, and it, it appears that he recognized he had a dilemma. God was the only one that could answer it, and so he leaned upon the Lord. The same would be true of Joseph of Arimathea, the one who was a secret disciple of Jesus, just like Rahab the harlot who responded to the Lord, she trusted in God also. Just like Jerry, April 8th, 1980, responded to the Lord because God showed me how sinful my sin genuinely was before him. Hopefully, just like you also have responded to the Lord, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and Rahab the harlot. All by ourselves, we're in a spiritual mess. We can clean up the outside of the cup like the Pharisees did, but it doesn't take care of what's on the inside. And the only thing that can, be, that can care for what's on the inside is the blood of Jesus Christ. And we sang a song about it this morning. It's the only way to be purified. 
Nicodemus had a desperate situation, a, a significant dilemma because of who he was and what he did and the Word of God and how it was dealing with his heart. But that's what the Word of God does. It grabs our attention and it guides us to the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope that the Word of God grabs your attention and guides you to the person of Jesus Christ. And it might be that that happens to you when you're a child. It can be genuine. But just because, it, because they did something doesn't make that genuine. I think it's going to play its way out later on in life as well. It might be that you're a teenager and God's Word is gripping your heart. And it's time to believe and be born again. It could be that you've been in church for 40 years or 50 years or longer. And you realize, you know what? Really all I have is just dead religiosity. It's no good. It, you must be born again. Amen? If you know Jesus, you know that you know him. His word even gives us a, a, a test so that we can know that it's a genuine biblical faith as well. You must be born again. And I hope Nicodemus' response in the middle of all that he had going on can encourage you in, this, in the situation that you're at to recognize I must be born again. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. I think about Nicodemus and all the things that might have been going through his mind must have left him amazed. All that he had, who he was, the tasks that he did, the group that he participated with, and yet, Jesus, you come to him and say to him, you must be born again. Drink from me the water of life, and out of your life will flow rivers of living water. Father, that was true then, it's true today, and I pray that your spirit and your word would break through any hearts that are here that would think otherwise. Maybe there's been deception, not intentional. But when we encounter the word of God over and over and over saying, you must be born again. The desperate situation that you're in only has one answer, the answer of Jesus Christ. Father, help us not to have the mentality or for those who might have this mentality to not have the mentality of cleaning up the outside of the cup and letting what's on the inside be rotten. Break through, bring life like only you can bring. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen.